0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: As a listener to this podcast, you might often fantasise about your ideal cabinet, who you'd have as Prime Minister, Foreign Secretary, Chancellor, or Home Secretary. But have you ever had that thought? But with beer? Thanks to our friends at Beer 52, you can create your own cabinet of beers. You get a free case of eight craft beers, and all you have to do is cover the postage of £5.95. So go to beer52.com slash party, that's the word beer, the numbers five and two, dot com slash party and get your free case of eight beers, and you can arrange them however you like. You can create a cabinet, or depending on your political leanings, a shadow cabinet, or just leave them in the cabinet. And of course, the joy of a Beer 52 monthly subscription is that you can have a reshuffle every month, which would still make it more stable than most of the governments we have in the UK. It comes with a magazine and a snack, and if you don't like dark beer, you can choose the light option. You can pause or cancel at any time. So if you want to bring some stability, and you don't fancy a reshuffle, you can indeed lead by example. Go to beer52.com party and pay £5.95 postage to get all this now. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. This episode features the Mayor of the West Midlands, Andy Street. Andy is facing re-election in May, and as we come towards those elections in May, happening across the UK for various different institutions, the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Senate, police and crime commissioners across the UK, uh, the London Assembly, the London Mayor. I'm going to try and talk to candidates from all different parties standing for all different types of office. So um, Andy's the first really uh, nod uh, in any serious way towards uh, having some guests that reflect what's happening in May. And I have put a link in the blurb For you to register to vote by post. And this is something I talked to Andy about. Maybe I'm just being overly sensitive about this. But given that we're still in lockdown. Because of a lethal virus. And elections are happening across the UK in May. I do think it's a bit odd that we're not talking about postal voting more. That there aren't big campaigns on the telly. On the radio. Online and on billboards. On the side of buses. Telling us to register to vote by post. Because surely we should all want as high a turnout as possible. And we should all want people to be taking part in this huge democratic exercise. Anyway, I don't want to get bogged down in that, but if you want to register to vote by post, you can do so. And I've put a link wherever you live in the UK, you can do that in the blurb. Uh, Andy is the Mayor of the West Midlands. He's been the Mayor of the the West Midlands (laughs) Um, Midlands, um, for four years. And we talk about what his mayoralty involves constitutionally because... Different mayors have different levels of authority and different powers they can do different things now the old lord mayors which some people still think of when they think of elected mayors wearing the kind of town crier hat and the gold chain and going around in a ceremonial car it's a very different type but even within the elected mayoral model obviously the mayor of london has powers that when i worked for the elected mayor of stoke before it was abolished in a separate referendum had there and the mayor of the west midlands has different powers to and there are mayors elected mayors within london so we talk about specifically the mayoralty of the west midlands how its power works what its powers are what extra powers Andy thinks it should have um, and why devolution in England is going along that route and whether that's wise whether that's desirable whether it's the right model and um, and we talk about some of the things that he's been able to do. And he's got a fascinating life story as well. He used to run John Lewis. Uh, and obviously that is a business with a particular structure uh, that is employee owned. So whether that reflects his values and what sort of conservative he is. So it's a, it's a whole, uh, it's just a brilliant... Now, I realise I'm very interested in um, local politics and accountability and what powers different people have. Uh, I therefore, by extension, presume you will as well. So we start off with a discussion about the nuts and bolts of it before we get on to the wider issues about uh, industry in the West Midlands and and the automotive uh, industry. Uh, Now, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And a few people have got in touch asking to get Andy on. They were really interested to hear from him. So do get in touch and let me know uh, what guests you would like. And as we come towards these elections in May, obviously I'm going to try and get... Uh, more recognisable names but I will get lesser known names as well to try and get the full story of this carnival of politics we're going to have in May um, I say that in a sarcastic way. I genuinely do feel like that. I'm really interested in what's it like to be a police and crime commissioner or to stand against one and try and get elected or you know, all the different levels of election we're going to have across the UK. I am, as you would imagine, very interested in. So I shouldn't say it in that sarcastic way. Um, but do get in touch if there are interesting candidates in your areas or if you're an interesting candidate, um, then let me know politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with feedback from any episode. Uh, Matt Isom got in touch. Now, many of you may have been thinking this. I didn't spot this in the Margaret Beckett episode. He said the EU joined the EEC on the first of january nineteen seventy three. Margaret was elected in nineteen seventy four. <laughs> now, come on. There's not that much time in between. But, of course, I, I just remember being so struck by that as a fact, you know, that Margaret had entered Parliament before we joined the EEC and she's still an MP after we left the EU. And, wow, what does that say? Now, there's, in reality, a few months in it. But, nevertheless, well-spotted, Matthew. So, um, if you have guest suggestions, if you've spotted any historical or factual inaccuracies, I mean, but do get in touch. I, I would, it would be slightly heartbreaking for me. To, to open up the political party inbox and to see it full of corrections. But newspapers do this sort of thing, so so why not podcasts as well? So uh, do do that. Email me, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And uh, leave a review on iTunes, please. It helps other people find this podcast. Tell your friends about it, tell your family about it. But let's crack on uh, with the mayor of the West Midlands, Andy Street, the conservative mayor of the East Midlands, Andy Street, who was elected initially, quite strangely, for a three-year term... Which was extended to four because of COVID. So I began by asking him why on earth this post was created with sort of strange short term in mind.
0: Oh, it was a technical point, but uh, it didn't really matter in a sense. And we got four years came. It was just exactly a, a year ago that the Prime Minister cancelled the election that was due last year and uh, the extra year came. And that has seemed by far and away the longest of the four years, given that everything is that's been uh, thrown at us. But as you said, elections due again, and again next uh, this coming May.
1: And just coming to those elections in May, obviously, so many, we're still in lockdown when we record this. The vaccines coming and more people can move around as a result of that eventually but it's something that I've been asking guests quite a bit recently I can't believe there hasn't been a bigger drive on postal voting because I can't help but feel that even come May which isn't that far away a lot of people are going to be quite nervous about going to polling stations is it something you're mindful of Yeah, to be very honest, I was a bit surprised the decision was taken to
0: go ahead. But I think in a sense, it's another sign of some return to normality. And, you know, for those who are still anxious, uh, then postal votes there, of course. And I think all the parties are probably encouraging their supporters to sign up for the postal vote. But uh, yeah, I'm determined that we should go ahead because, you know, these elections are a year overdue. So there is a democratic principle at stake here that we've got to get on with them.
1: There is. Now, you're one of a number of new metro mayors. So just for people, obviously, the London one is the one everyone thinks about. But then even, uh, I think, Lewisham and Newham have mayors as well, as well as the London mayor. So different mayors have different responsibilities, even different elected mayors. And the mayor of the West Midlands, you effectively chair the West Midlands Combined Authority. So then your cabinet is, this is almost like the European Union of the West Midlands. You are kind of the council president and... The people in your cabinet are the other leaders of the other... They're all the leaders of the different authorities in the West Midlands. Constitutionally, it must be a bit of a headache for you. Oh, I think there's probably people
0: listening in the West Midlands now saying, please don't liken us to the EU. I mean, I think that that, that will not go down well with uh, with many here. Uh, but, and to be very honest, of, of course, when a new organisation set up as this was new when I uh, was elected, of course, there's some challenges. But I think there's a far more important point than the Constitution. Was there a goodwill here, across cross party to make this work? Yes, there was. Because, of course, the other interesting thing about the West Midlands is this, are not, this is not a place like London, which effectively... Uh, Sadiq is a Labour mayor with a Labour GLA like Manchester, where it's pretty much one party state, Liverpool. This is a really balanced political place. It has been for decades. And actually, I think that's been a good thing because it's forced people to work together cross-party.
1: And it's a far bigger area as well than, than the places that you mentioned. And it has a far more diverse identity. I mean, the West Midlands is a region. It's not a city. You're covering so many people, so many different communities with so many different... You know, d- different political
0: forces. Oh yeah, you're quite right, Matt. So uh, I suspect there aren't people sitting, as I was say, on the number nine bus saying, "Hey, I'm from the West Midlands." Uh, you know, they say they're from Birmingham or Coventry or Wolverhampton or Warsaw. and uh, that's great actually because they've each got their own independence and identity. But that and and this, as you're right. This is a big place when all add up together. It's about three million people. I say our economy is the size of a small European Union state. So. It, Think sort of place but the critical thing was of course each place has to defend its identity it is different but there was actually a sort of shared common purpose if you think about our economy our transport system they don't stop at the end of one borough to the next it's actually about doing things where we can work better together
1: and for you uh, uh, and it does differ from manchester and, and, and liverpool and london do people in the west midlands I'm just thinking as to why the West Midlands has a combined authority and, and uh, you know, different parts of the country have different levels of, uh, you know, governance and, and different models of governance. Why then the West Midlands? I mean, I remember, I remember Tony Blair trying to get a northeast authority off the ground and the, the voters there rejected it in a referendum. Is there something about the West Midlands more than other parts of England then that does have a regional identity in, compared to other areas?
0: Uh, So I think actually this model is uh, actually being used now in lots of areas of England actually so uh, I think there were six that were born at the time it was born here in 2017, obviously Greater Manchester, Liverpool City Region, uh, but then others have come on since actually, Sheffield City Region and actually West Yorkshire is going for a combined authority in the election of a mayor this time round. So I can't claim that there was something particular here but what I can claim is that the leaders who agreed to set this up, which the leader of all the local authority back into 2015, they saw the deal that was offered by the central government and felt, yes, we can do better by working together. And if I'm honest, this place probably needed to do that because we hadn't done particularly well out of previous arrangements. And maybe we'd not worked in tandem quite as well as some other parts of the country. So there was a real willingness to try to work collectively for better outcomes. And that's what drove this.
1: And what sort of powers does your cabinet have then? Obviously, you you have a direct relationship with the voters of the West Midlands. Your name is on every ballot paper. And then the leaders of those councils that make up your cabinet have their own mandates. Yep. Do they have any power within the authority? So the way it works is that uh, you take, let's take a city
0: council like Coventry. It still does what it always did before. So it runs its social services, it runs its parks, it runs its waste collection. But there are some things that we've come together on. So we've come together for regional transport planning, we've come together for regional planning of post-16 education, the thoughts about where we use our housing funds to develop housing, and of and of course, critically, things that aren't necessarily uh, one particularly deliverable, but things where we've got a united need to lobby central government for something. A great example of that would be, some will disagree with me, but the case made for HS2 would be a brilliant outcome for this uh, region. So it's about us coming together on those added things, not taking away from local authorities. And then the individual leaders of local authorities all have a role within our combined authorities. The leader of Coventry is responsible for our plans around skills and training and education.
1: And how do they feel about that? Do they say, "Look, I'm I'm a leader myself. I'm running." You know, Ian Ward might say, "I'm running Birmingham City Council." You know, I've, I've got I, I'm actually in charge of something here. I don't need to be coming to your cabinet meetings and answering to you. No, I think they'd say, "Yeah." Well, the evidence is it's held together pretty well
0: for four years, and the evidence is they all want to be part of something bigger. But critically, it's not trying to diminish what they are responsible for, and this spirit of working
1: together is critical. And do those. It might be easy to look at. I mean, it's almost entirely half and half. You pretty much half of the authorities are Labour, half of them are Conservative. People might look at that on paper and say, "Well, those tensions play out along party lines. That the Conservative leaders in the West Midlands are more on side with what you're trying to do, and the Labour ones aren't." Is it as simple as that? No, it definitely isn't as simple as that. I think we would have failed at the first hurdle if
0: it had been like that. And actually, no, I think this gives us a huge advantage that this region has long been politically balanced. If you think of our MPs, 14 Labour MPs, 14 Conservative MPs. So everybody sort of knows that you've got to make this cross-party thing work. And I actually believe that we have been much stronger. For me not being particularly partisan, yes, of course, I'm a Conservative, I'm proud of that, but I don't spend my time in this job uh, bashing Labour councils or indeed blindly supporting a Conservative government because very clearly my loyalty is to people in this region and that must come first.
1: And do they have, does, does the cabinet have any constitutional power? Can they can they veto plans or, or is it not that sort of cabinet? Oh,
0: yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. There's real uh, real authority. Uh, it, any cash that we spend uh, is signed off by our board, we call it actually, rather than cabinet. It's not, it's not a formal cabinet structure, but the decisions are taken by the board. And one thing I am actually pleased with is that over the last four years, the board decisions have been a cross party. Uh, unanimously supported. So the investment decisions are seen as in the total interest of the Westminster. We can't have Leader of One Council coming along and saying, "You know, Warsaw doesn't get the best deal out of that. Or I don't know, uh, Sandwall doesn't get the best deal out of that. Therefore, I'm not supporting. There's a sort of maturity to it, which goes each has their turn and a part of something bigger.
1: And do you are you effectively the, the chair of the board? Is that the primary function of the, the mayor of the West Midlands Combined Authority? Obviously, you have a business background. You're MD of John Lewis. Is a chair the best way for the public to understand the role you have now? Um, so cha- you do chair the board. That's a, a statement of fact. But I think it's I think it's more than that, actually,
0: because chairs can be quite passive. Well, no, that's probably not fair on chairs in business, chair. Uh, discuss the whole chair CEO model but uh, but I think it's more than that actually so as an individual elected politician as you say the individual mandates my name on the ballot paper you say this is what we're going to do across the West Midlands so the since my election uh, four years ago now proposals that have come forward would have been in that manifesto then so it's well beyond neutral chairing it's there's my plan for the West Midlands we're going to get behind it but critically I can't just impose it even even with that democratic will, because the funding decisions are taken collectively.
1: One of the major reasons for, for having elected mayors of all different sizes uh, and scales was, was that issue of accountability. I worked for an elected mayor, the elected mayor of Stoke-on-Trent, Mark Meredith, back in the day. And I just thought it transformed the public's relationship, particularly with local government, that it was it was far better for accountability. I think people in areas led by a traditional council um leader model often don't know who the leader of the council is where you have elected mayors if nothing else recognition seems to be a lot higher which itself is a form of accountability is that something you agree with i mean do you, do you think people across the west midlands are familiar with who they with who you are The research would say yes, but
0: the principle behind this of one person being accountable and then the electorate being able to say we either approve of him or her or we don't is one I thoroughly agree with. You know, in anything in life, find me the person who's in charge and hold them accountable is a pretty good piece. And let's look at it the other way, because you talked about how how residents see the people. But look at it the other way. I do think a key role of the mayor is to be the representative, the champion of that place with London, with government, indeed, you could almost say round the world. And David Cameron explained this to me quite clearly when uh, he was trying to encourage me to do this job, to be honest, when he was prime minister. And he said, you know, if I want to talk to London, I ring Boris. You know, Boris was mayor of London at the time. And uh, he said, if I want to ring the West Midlands, who do I ring? Yes, I might ring the leader of Birmingham City Council, but he doesn't speak for the other areas. The mandate is slightly different. So it's about one person being that sort of linkage, uh, that representative uh, uh, spokesperson
1: champion, you might call it. So David Cameron was, was trying to get you to, to be the Conservative candidate for the West Midlands. How much prior contact did you, you had with him? Um, well. A reasonable amount, actually,
0: uh, because uh, two things. Obviously, leading a big organisation like John Lewis, um, and particularly given its nature as a workers' cooperative a differently formed business, this was very popular in the Cameron and Clegg days. And he had this thing that he called the Business Advisory Group, and uh, he invited me to join that when he was first elected. So I saw him a bit there. I've always been interested in politics, so I saw him a bit sort of through, you know, as well. And then I took on being chair of his first experience, Experiment in devolution, which was the local enterprise partnerships. And the idea of that, of course, was that a business person would come alongside academics and indeed uh, local councils to be responsible for driving the economic performance of a region. So I was asked to chair the Birmingham and Solihull one, And so I actually saw him and George Osborne quite a lot through doing that. And so, yeah, and it was out of that local enterprise partnership experience that I got the sort of bug. And so when the uh, post of mayor was then created in 2015, yeah, he was saying, come on, Andy, you should do this. I was thinking, hang on a minute, I'm enjoying being CEO of John Lewis, really. So um, why should I change? But actually I was clear. I was, it didn't take me long to be persuaded actually. Uh, I did wait until after the 2016 referendum, uh, the Brexit referendum, because I knew that, you know, uh, that might lead to changes. So I wanted to see who was going to be prime minister, frankly, and in whose name I would be the conservative candidate. So it was just three weeks into Theresa May's time as PM that I went to see her and said, Theresa, I will do this. Um, But two conditions. The first condition is that you back me down the line, which she did. And the second condition, which I'm very pleased I made, was we will run this whole thing as a campaign from Birmingham and the West Midlands. It will not be made in London because it was just a very important principle to me. If it was all
1: about localism, we were going to run it locally. And she honoured both of those commitments perfectly. So had someone else become Conservative leader and Prime Minister, might you not have stood? Definitely, yeah. What, so had it been Andrea Leadsom, you
0: wouldn't have done it? So you're not going to get me to say if it was X, I would, if it was Y, I wouldn't have done. We're not going to do that, that sport. But there is a principle here, isn't it? I built some sort of reputation leading John Lewis. And if I was going to give that up and stand, of course, I stand on my own merits. But you stand, you have to stand as a Conservative candidate. I wanted to. So who was the leader of the party? Whose sort of banner would I be under? So, yeah, it did matter. And that's why I waited till after the um, referendum to see how it all played out.
1: And... When you mention local uh, enterprise partnerships, LEPs and uh, and all these other different things about individuals able to be accountable for driving the economic performance of an area. And now as, as mayor of the West Midlands, how much influence can you have? I mean, what levers are available to you to affect the economic performance of an area?
0: Oh, over time. It's huge. Absolutely huge. So, um, uh, 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 so of course there are underlying forces. So I accept that entirely, but areas have to decide what they're going to specialise in. And so I was a huge believer in the sort of Greg Clark idea of an industrial strategy. Government, current government might not call it industrial strategy, but the idea of different places contribute different things to our recovery is spot on right. Our economy here is different to that in the northeast. So we should really be focusing on the things that make us brilliant. So to give you a really good example of practical example of this, this this whole region has been famous for its automotive industry. That's gonna change massively. If we are not successful in winning the electrification battle, making sure that our industry here is world competitive, then jobs will be lost here over time. So we've got to make sure that we win this massive investment for our battery factory, the gigafactory. We've got to make sure we're retraining people in the skills they need for that electrification piece. And then we've actually got to win international investments as well uh, for companies to get companies to come and relocate here for that investment. So yeah you can influence a lot over time by concentrating
1: on the right things. And when you talk about the electrification, you're talking about a transport. So th- this gigafactory would, what, make batteries that go in electric cars? Correct. Exactly right. Yeah.
0: And the and the reason it's so important is that, you know, we, we uh, you acknowledge rap- rapidly that uh, uh, the current automotive industry, based on the combustion engine, uh, is going to change because, of course, petrol and diesel vehicles are going to be illegal to be sold in the UK by... 2030. The industry will be electrified. Jaguar Land Rover, as Britain's biggest automotive manufacturer, has just announced all their vehicles moving to electric. So the question is what have you got to do to set that industry for success here? And the battery will be the core of the new electric vehicle, about 40% of the value of the vehicle, and we've got to make them here. We don't currently have a battery factory, so we've got to catch up, frankly, with one or two other places around the world where that's already being done.
1: And thinking of Britain's industrial past, uh, coal mines spring up where there's coal under the ground, and the same with steel. You know, it's about what natural resources that a territory has. With things like cars, it's slightly different. Um, it's not as there, there are, like, cars in the ground you're trying to mine out. So why, why historically, did the West Midlands become uh, the centre of, of Britain's car industry? Um, so...
0: It's probably uh, historically about uh, the skills that were here, uh, and it will be for the future as well. So when you talk to uh, footloose investors, I'll give you an, an example which you'll think, oh, that's interesting. I'll give you an example. You've heard of Norton Motorbikes, which you will know, famous old name, went into receivership, just been bought by an Indian company, and we've done the deal for them to relocate their business to Solihull. Now, why have they chosen to do that? To produce electric bikes. It's because the skills are here. Some of the brilliant research is here with our universities. That's a critical part of it going forward. And of course, uh, there are others in the supply chain who are here. So you build a whole cluster, really. And uh, that's, I think, what will give us strength in this market going forward.
1: And how much, you know, so much of this is about how consumers uh, perceive products and brands. And there is a kind of romance within the UK of going, people know the West Midlands is famous for uh, car manufacturing, Peugeot and Toyota and Land Rover, you know, JCB even, you know, think of all those yes. big brands that are in the, in the West Midlands. And of course, then there's a romance to going. Oh my God, this is built either near or on the old site as the old cars that you used to, you know, that your dad used to have, or your granddad used to have or whatever. So th- I get that part of it. Does that help these brands abroad? You know, do it, how much is, um, in terms of exporting these things going oh this is made in the West Midlands where these these big old brands used to be well if you take J- JLR a huge proportion of their um
0: production is exported and I do genuinely think that whole sort of tradition of uh, Land Rover origins here in Solihull uh, you know the the union flag that was there at the beginning of their Land Rover Solihull Warwickshire it says it by back of all their vehicles it did. I think that still counts for a lot, actually. Uh, so I think, yeah, there is some there is some real resonance, and there's still a sort of sense of quality uh, workmanship uh, that comes from uh, manufacturers in this region. So definitely, there's something to be glued into there in the marketing. But the companies can't just trade on the past. Of course, they've got to sort of modernise that. But really successful businesses like JLR, that's what you see they're doing. Yes. If you don't get the factory, it is all hope lost. No, 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 no. I mean, there is an important point here. You do have to have some big stakes in a regional economic plan. And so just, you may be interested, very first time I saw the Prime Minister after he was elected, I think it was in day three, he was in office, he came here. We had the plan of the putative gigafactory out on the table just to prove how important this is. And then a year later, the cash came through in the autumn statement for supporting this. So yeah, you do have to, you know, get behind some big stakes. But I don't want any of your listeners to think the Westman's economy is totally dependent on that. That would be all wrong. And so we've got other sectors that we're also very excited about the future in particularly the sort of health and life sciences sector just a huge investment announced in south birmingham about a new life sciences park working with the university the hospital so yeah there's plenty of other plenty of other strings to the bow here in the west midlands now and that's actually been one of the reasons actually that we've done relatively well as a region over the last few years best growth of any region in the run-up to the end of 2020 uh, and that's been about diversifying our economy as well
1: uh, so in what ways have you diversified it
0: so, because uh, people would historically have said when we were vulnerable that we were too dependent on low value manufacturing. So, uh, the v- manufacturing has improved its productivity vastly. But then also, as I say, uh, real growth in the creative sector. That's been perhaps one of the fastest growing areas in the digital and tech sectors. And if you go in sort of LinkedIn jobs for West Midlands at the moment, that's where the jobs are. And of course, also the services sector for financial services. So I think one of the really sort of iconic. Um, moves for Birmingham over the last few years has been the move of HSBC UK bank headquarters from Canary Wharf to Birmingham I mean that was an incredible vote of confidence in the financial services sector here so actually this now is the second place in the UK for all of those uh, that total financial services sector take everything in it banking insurance da, da, da.
1: so obviously you want to have more than just um that that automotive uh uh industry in in the west midlands in terms of what you can actually do then and the other the other the other powers available to you and and how you can use them housing is such a big issue for people it's nationally it's probably one of the biggest issues facing people what can you do as, as as mayor of the west midlands for housing across the region What powers do you have in that area?
0: Really, really interesting link between the previous stuff all about the economy and housing, actually. So one thing we always say in our economic plans is let's deal with all the supply side pieces sounds a bit dry but it's what actually enables business to succeed how good's the public transport the linkages how good's the housing quality indeed and how well trained are the uh, the workforce here how qualifications so on all three we have real influence perhaps the best thing about housing is the evidence and i think it drove performance here actually we've actually doubled the number of homes built in this region over the last 5 years Progress well ahead of elsewhere and particularly what we did was we struck what we called a housing deal with central government where they gave us a lot of cash 400 million pounds for us to be cleaning up old derelict brownfield sites and that's perhaps become a hallmark of the west midlands because sadly we had rather too many of them and we're now seeing both housing schemes and commercial schemes coming up where frankly there have been decades of dereliction so I think we've genuinely made a difference in that brownfield first policy.
1: Well, that's a big discussion, not just within the Conservative Party, but the traditional Tory uh, housing policy is something along right to buy. But you're absolutely right to say that that many people in the Conservative Party say, well, this is about supply as well as as well as well demand. Now, you've, you say you've doubled the amount of houses, but how many is that? That, that might be a, a doubling of, you know, that might be 20 instead of 10. I mean, are we talking no, no, big no, no. numbers?
0: No, 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 no. Uh, it's uh, to a number of 17,000 per year. Uh, now, uh, that's the new number. Now, reason why it's important, and you're going to think I sound like some sort of communist state planner here. What we did at the start of the command Authority, we worked out what we needed per year uh, in order to meet the demand, assuming we got certain economic growth, certain level of inward migration, to actually say that's our target. And the reason 17,000 comes off my head like that, that was the annual target. So we've not just doubled it, we've got to the target. And there's a sort of principle here. Our uh, deal with government They said, you will have the money steadily if you achieve an increased output. And that's what we've done. So in terms of how sort of this notion of a regional um, uh, uh, authority works, I'm absolutely up for that idea of, yeah, let's have that plan and let's actually see us deliver the outcomes we said we would.
1: But 17,000 across, you know, the the area that you, the West Midlands geographically is big. Population-wise, it's similar to Wales. You're talking about 3 million people. 17,000 yeah. doesn't sound like that many.
0: No, I disagree with you, Matt. Per year, per year, every year up to 2031, was the target. That easily makes our number the second, the biggest number outside London. And actually, if you do our share of the national targets, then it actually means that we are on target. So you're obviously um, even more ambitious. And that's <laughs> It definitely is a stretch. And we have got to that stretch. But I'm particularly pleased because this is where it links to the whole climate emergency stuff, particularly pleased that we've done it hugely overwhelmingly through this redevelopment of brownfield
1: sites. And where those houses are, again, is, is something that is sensitive. And when you've got to balance the needs and priorities of an entire region, it can be very difficult just in general, not just on housing, but on any issue where you're making decisions about transport, housing, businesses, where to locate things. Again, the West Midlands is such a big place with so many different needs. How do you find juggling those those priorities, deciding who gets what?
0: Oh, it's 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 hard. We will free admit that. Um, but uh, I think the best answer to that question is that it's it's through working with our local authorities actually, uh, and everybody being mature in thinking. Right, we might not get this time but we will get something else next time and we've seen I'll give you a really good example as well um uh, the biggest single investment that we made infrastructure investment um was our metro extension out through the black country so sandwell dudley areas that have been cut off from the rail network for 50 years I mean, it's incredible to think, isn't it? Town of Dudley size, 350,000 inhabitants, no connection to the national rail system after Dr. Beeching. I mean, no wonder some would have said, and people in Dudley would not like this phrase, but some say of it, it was the classic sort of left behind time. So the very first thing we did, huge investment, was uh, commit to our metro going there. But that was a decision taken by all leaders and the mayor, because you could see the total benefit from the region if we really could double down on the growth in that area. And the wonderful thing is, on the back of that investment going in, it's about 400 million to build the line. We've got over a billion of investment now going into the centre of Dudley on the back of that. So you see how that uh, infrastructure investment can get new investment coming in. on. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
1: quite neatly it ties into the to the themes of Boris Johnson's government the the so-called levelling up agenda about how you use the apparatus of the state and the powers available to you to to drive economic growth and and improve people's lives um I, i'm just wondering what you know if you were to be unsuccessful in in your (laughs) re-election bid and a a Labour mayor comes in. You know, so much of this sounds really pragmatic, as local government often does in a way that perhaps national government doesn't. Do you worry about uh, someone else coming in and and changing those priorities? Oh, and... You're, just let's deal with the first half of what you implied,
0: actually. Yeah, we were trying to do levelling up before it became fashionable, actually. That was the whole notion of this devolution, that Britain needed at its regional places to do better. And actually, when you survey the post-pandemic landscape, my goodness... The country needs all of its big regional cities and areas to do better to drive the total uh, performance. Uh, so yeah, we were doing that. And of course, the way to do that above all else is improving the qualifications of the workforce in a place because that's what really drives uh, outcomes, opportunities for people. So yeah, we, that's what we were doing. You're absolutely right. Now, of course, do I worry that someone else uh, would do it differently? Uh, I I accept that if they win the election, they have a right to, frankly. But of course, I I have the same sort of immodesty as most politicians. I happen to believe that uh, that we should stick with the plan that we had that was definitely working pre-COVID. We're not just going to reheat it post because things have changed, but basically take those ingredients and then adapt them for the post-COVID world, of course. And I would urge anyone to stick with that because the evidence there was that we
1: were actually doing that levelling up before anyone else even talked about it. Thinking about devolution in general, do you think, obviously it often gets seen through the prism of Scotland and England, but is devolution in England best done at a regional basis rather than thinking about having an English parliament?
0: Yes, categorically. People have got to feel some affinity for the place. Now, of course, we're all proud to be English, aren't we? Uh, you know, when, when, I can't speak for every listener of the show. I, I well, we see it, we see it, don't we, through the through, through the through the sporting piece. But in terms of a place being big enough. But distinct enough for devolution to work for its own priorities, I do think the big English regions are, the, are a sensible size of building block. So Yorkshire, Greater Manchester, the West Midlands, absolutely. And as I say, we're basically the same size as many small European economies. So, uh, And we do have, you know it sounds a jargon word, but those sort of travel to work areas uh, where people come from across a whole region, tends to be into the cities, different city centres. You can see how they just work geographically. So, yeah, I do think
1: that's the right building block. I just think about unintended consequences of some of these things. Um, for instance, you know, this idea you hear it a lot in the constitutional debate in Scotland that Labour supporters of devolution said, well, it would kill the campaign for independence stone dead, and it seems to have done anything. But is there a danger if we focus devolution in England on on regions and on those big city regions that there is... Something lost to the English identity, that, that that there might be a kind of unintended consequence of that at some point. No, I, I don't think so.
0: And we are certainly not suggesting that uh, some sort of independence for the west midlands movement <laughs> not any not in any way not even the most fervent from me would suggest uh, would suggest that and i think as we said in an earlier question it is quite possible to be loyal to be up to a place and be part of something bigger but the simple question here matt is is it sensible given how we've talked about regional economic specializations is it sensible that decisions around investment which are Very small by a national standard. Whether we're putting, you know, a railway line there, a new college there, uh, does that really all need to be taken by civil servants in Whitehall? No, it doesn't. Because the model at the moment isn't true devolution. What it is is sort of form of decentralisation. We're asked to put our proposals together, and of course we do that with great pride. And because you. controlling what goes in of course there's a huge impact there but actually the decisions as to what tends to be funded will come out of central government and so the behavior that we're all into is the lobbying the asking and i would be much happier with right. andy that's your set of money you decide what you're going to do with it with your region involving people of course and actually let civil servants in london concentrate on other things rather than second guessing what i think can be local decisions
1: and i genuinely think can be taken well in a locality you might not want independence for the west midlands but what do you presumably no politician is going to say they want less powers what do you think no, no no what more power would you like and what do you think the limit of those powers should be so, so the big, the, the next step, because the creation of mayoralty is definite huge step. This
0: idea of a single point of accountability, a, fa- a figure who goes and lobbies for you. So, uh, you know, all, all, all of that was great, and actually, I think actually the pandemic has driven that forward as well. People have seen their mayors standing up for their for their regions, but there is a, the next step that I hope government will take in this sort of building these um, these uh, the capability really of these local areas, and it is about financial sustainability. As I say, at the moment. Uh, we're asking central government for cash. What I'd like us to move to is that taxes—that some taxes that are raised in the regions—are held in the regions. Don't need to tax people more. Be absolutely clear about that. But you're paying airport passenger duty, vehicle excise duty. You're paying stamp duty. You're paying uh, VAT on sort of restaurants, whatever in a an, in a in a in a local place. You're paying money on your electricity bill. Let's hold paying uh, tax on your electricity bill. Let's hold those things locally. And the deal is then struck with government, which goes, right, Andy, that's the money you've got for the West Midlands. Don't ask us for any more. You live by the outcomes. And I think that's a much more mature, sustainable model than us, as I always say, sending in our homework for marking.
1: And what about the ability to, to create new
0: taxes? Yeah, you, uh, uh, you, you could do that. We do have that ability, actually. We have the opportunity of precepts on council tax and on business rates, but we haven't done that because actually that is the last thing that business needs at the moment, additional tax. This is about saying we're already raising these taxes and uh, they should be retained here. One really good example of it. It's a slightly anarchy question, but I do think it's the way forward. The deal was struck here in 2016 for us to keep any increase in our business rates. So that was actually a sort of you share in the success of your regional economy. There has been great success in our economy in the four four years since then to pre-pandemic. And it's actually those increasing business rates have funded a lot of activities here. So there's a model that I think can be built on. You succeed, you keep it, you reinvest it.
1: Business is something you know well, as you say, you, you ran John Lewis. And John Lewis has a, a special place in the nation's hearts. Uh, you know, it's employee ownership model, not just for its Christmas adverts, of course. But the model of John Lewis, I mean, maybe I'm wrong in this, it seems quite rare. Why don't you think other companies have, have followed John Lewis's lead?
0: Uh, interesting question, Matt. It isn't actually that rare. There are thousands of employee-owned uh, companies across the country. The, uh what's rare about John Lewis is the scale that it got to, actually, to be, uh, uh, you know, when I left, it was the most trusted brand in Britain. I think it still is the favourite brand in Britain, some research I saw recently. So it got from, you know, a small company to that wonderful brand uh, position, actually. So the question is, why did it grow? And I think there's some, um, oh, there's books and books on this, but I think the really simple point is, It's not actually a pure democracy where literally everybody decides everything. It is a democracy in that the management is ultimately accountable to the uh, employees, the partners, but the decision making is taken by the executive. So it can act pretty nimbly, can be decisive over its investments. And I suspect it's that clever mix that the founder of the partnership left of that executive authority, with that democratic accountability that's made it succeed and too often employee ownership businesses are perfect democracies literally in the classical sense of it uh, and they don't
1: therefore grow partners is the crucial word and waitrose eagle-eyed customers will see that waitrose has subtly rebranded themselves the other year waitrose and partners is that something you would have done if you were still in charge
0: um, it was already on the stocks, actually, when I was there in John It's not Waitrose, of course, but the two have done it together. Um, so the honest answer to that is I, I don't know if I'd have spent all the money that that's taken. But what I do know uh, is that um, the idea of the partnership model was underpinning everything. The fact you're served by a partner when you go in or when you have your delivery or when you ring up or whatever, uh, um Absolutely. That's the core of John Lewis's success. So definitely everything we did was about trying to make that relevant to the customer, because that's where you get your distinction from, of course. So, yeah, uh, that's that's the very heart of it.
1: And how does uh, how, how does the uh, John Lewis model reflect what sort of conservative you are? Um, uh, you know, b- yeah. Tory attitudes to the workforce, to to how much power or influence um, uh, employees should have. You know, people might sometimes be be sceptical or even or even cynical about. But John Lewis provides a model that that gives, I guess, in a way, it's like right to buy in an employment sense. Um, but it's not every conservatives idea no, of how businesses right. should be run you're quite right
0: i think it reflects it does reflect very deeply what type of conservative i am so let's be honest i worked there for 30 years uh moved up from being the trainee on the shop floor at brent cross uh to near you near where you said you live uh <laughs> to uh being uh, the managing director and uh, so you've obviously got to be pretty comfortable with its value set to be able to do that so let's be clear john lewis was a capitalist company there's no A soft edge to that, and we had to compete with Tesco and Marks and Spencers and everybody else. But the way it did it, includes in terms of being inclusive, compassionate, all of those things, was, I think, what gave it its distinction. And in a sense, that's utterly consistent with my views of uh, uh, what makes a good conservative leader. Yes, you've got to be, in a sense, uh, determinedly um, competitive uh, in the market sense of that, and you've got to back, back success. But you have also got to have that sort of value set, which makes sure that success is delivered in an inclusive way. And you are very, very compassionate towards those who perhaps do not naturally uh, obtain the success from something. So there is a huge similarity between the values that I saw in Jono's and what I've tried to have in my personal political career.
1: You didn't head to Westminster, which a lot of people might be surprised by. They might say, a "Guy who ran John Lewis," you know, he was at Oxford. He was he was involved in the Tory Party when he was a student. The traditional trajectory is is onto onto Westminster. That's something that you've resisted so far. Why is that? And, and can you completely resist that? Yeah. So it's I, well. People often ask me this, Matt, and uh, I think I have been a bit uh,
0: contrary, unpredictable, whatever, over the years. So when I was at university, yeah, some of my uh, then friends at university, still are friends, actually, uh, went straight into the world of politics. Or lots of went into investment banking, actually. That was the thing that sort of in 1985, I left university oh, wow. which, before Margaret Thatcher's Big Bang, uh, my... Uh, some of my housemates, when I, you know, we all left university and continued our student life, frankly, uh, in our first house, they were in the, they were in that world. So yeah, lots of people said I should do it. I didn't. I went um, uh, to John Lewis at uh, Brent Cross, as I say, and I remember that first Christmas when I was on the till. Some of my. Um, Uh, uh, Oxford contemporaries would come in. They sort of me, Andy, what are you doing? You know, uh, what's happened? I said, well, I've taken a choice. I've joined a completely different company. I think it's got something to ethos. Let's see how it works out. Well, 20 years later, uh, I was happy with the choice I'd made when I'd, uh, you know, worked through JL. But yeah, it was a bit surprising. So similarly to come to the sort of surprise, um, I never wanted to be an MP. Uh, Good friends of mine are MPs. But I never wanted to do that. I don't think I'd actually been particularly good at it, actually. The whole business of taking the whip and being a uh, uh, being part of a a whipped team. Uh, But this political job is different because this is actually an executive political job where I'm not whipped by anybody. uh, And uh, my own loyalty is simply to that can be phrased differently. uh, uh, My uh, my own loyalty is simply to the people here and. yeah, uh, so I have no intention of moving to Westminster at all.
1: So, who were some of your contemporaries when you were at Oxford, involved in the Tory students in those days?
0: Well, Boris was there in my uh, there, but he, of course, was a great um, uh, uh, Union man, so that was not really uh, my uh, my way of life. Of course, Nick Robinson, who we all know for being the presenter, he was there as a uh, contemporary of mine, and then. Great uh, uh, MPs like Mel Stride, Richard Fuller, you know, there's quite a few who were there. Jane Ellison, who was there until recently. So, yeah,
1: a number of them. I mean, does Boris remember you from those days? I doubt it. I doubt it. (laughs) We've never compared notes. (laughs) But it is quite strange, I guess, to have been involved in student politics and to have not gone to Westminster, particularly student politics at Oxford. So was there a part of you that thought, actually, maybe you're not that political, with a, with a large P? Uh, I think it's actually something else. I've always believed
0: people should do uh, do another job before they go into uh, politics. And, of course, John O's was not the first job I applied for. So this might also say a little bit about my my value set as I was age 21. At leaving university so the job I actually applied for first of all uh, was to be a social worker for Birmingham City Council and um, that was my first ambition which all related to voluntary work I did here before I went up to university actually and um, I was set on it uh, and I thought I was going to do it uh, and you might say that's an odd thing for someone to be involved in student politics to, to want to do but I was that's what I wanted to do. But Birmingham were very wise. I remember the letter they wrote to me in my final year saying, uh, Andy, very sorry. Uh, there was a combination of two things. There is no money, as they all say, and what's changed. And uh, you probably haven't got the sort of, um, the experience of life that we might need for social workers in this city. And so that uh, ambition was thwarted. And so then I had to think of something else. And that's what that's what led to the John Lewis uh, romance, really.
1: So is this, now you return as the mayor of West Midlands. Is this some sort of, a sort of Oedipal revenge <laughs> on, on Birmingham City Council. Have you? I don't, it? I don't. I don't. Social... HR director,
0: who's still got the letter. I, I somewhat. <laughs> but there is there is an underlying point, isn't it? So I was lucky. I uh, uh, I, I grew up here. Had a, had a, uh, really loved the place. Feel very proud of it. Um, uh, family were all still here. So, uh, but I was lucky in the sense I had the career away from uh, um, being based in the Midlands, because obviously John is based in London. Uh, but I always had my sort of heart here, and I always knew that the place could do better. If you look at the sort of um, performance of Birmingham and the West Midlands through the uh, 90s, noughties, it wasn't particularly good. In fact, you know, just one simple stat, private sector jobs went backwards here in the noughties when we were having the Blair boom, apparently. It didn't happen here, missed out. And some of the endemic issues we're still facing, really came in that period so I always thought well maybe one day maybe one day you'll be able to go back home and do something and perhaps immodestly when those mayoralties were created that was what was really going on I was thinking we can we can do better and hopefully i would learned something in O's that will help me do that so yeah there is a sort of um, a circle to it um yeah
1: um one of the big brands of course in the in the West Midlands is Aston Villa Football Club back in the Premier League currently ninth in the ninth, table yeah. Not a bad start to the season. Helped, of course, by Matty Cash, who you signed from Nottingham Forest, who's who's a star, and Jack Grealish and many others. I I suppose it goes to the heart of something I asked you earlier. You know, within England, within the UK, there are different identities and different power relationships. But then within the West Midlands, you know, there'll be people who live in Stoke who say, well, Birmingham gets all the money and all the attention, you know, just as the West Midlands might say that of London. Those things play out locally as well. Do you have to be careful when you support one of the teams? In the oh the no, no! There's, of course, there's this of course, of everyone be
0: else. So you know, I, I, I'm very clear. I'd be, I am a Villa fan, very proud of the team, need it to do well for our city. But of course, uh, and I've just upset, you know, the Wolves fans and the West Brom fans. But uh, there's plenty of space for everyone to succeed uh, together, actually. And I, I, I would, well, I'll tell you a little story. One thing that's just been announced is that uh, I spent rather too much time in the last year working with the owners of Coventry City and indeed Wasps who own the Rico Stadium, because you might know that Coventry were playing away from the Rico at St Andrews. It's and been i been appalling, I, yeah. I and mean, for, yeah.
1: for years they played in Northampton as
0: well. They did did the whole sort of mediation between the sides to get them back to the Rico. And it was announced just yesterday that that is what's going to happen. And uh, so I'm more than happy to support all of our clubs because they take that city's names around uh, around the globe, we hope. Uh, but yeah, you have to have your own private loyalty as well. <laughs> well, it's allowed. great.
1: I'm delighted that Coventry are back at the Rico. My dad lives in Binley Woods. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know if you've yeah. ever been to the Binley Mega Chippy, which is- uh, I know infamous. where I've
0: been to Binley many times. I don't think I've been to the Mega Chippy.
1: Maybe during the campaign, that'll be a place we're to trying start. To build
0: a, we're trying to build a station in Binley. I don't know that, if that will serve the chippy or not. But, you
1: know. <laughs> but obviously, you know, Co- people remember Coventry being a force in the Premier League with Dion Dublin and Peter Undlove, you know, so you, and they were sponsored by Peugeot. Such an iconic marriage of two brilliant, you know, a big team, a big club and a, and a big local... Brand where these places, you know, where these teams play their football really matters to people. And it's bonkers that Coventry haven't been playing their football at the Rico for so long. Um, did having, do you think, and I realise this is a bit of a, a bowling underarm, do you think having a West Midlands mayor made any difference to getting Coventry back to the Rico? Was there something about you having that role and being able to speak for the whole region that kind of helped <laughs> deliver that or not? Bowling underarm indeed. So, uh...
0: Well, both the club and the uh, uh, WASPs uh, said, said when it was announced that I had played an active role as mediator. So it was me who was ringing up the, uh, the club and WASPs doing the, come on, we've got to sit around the table together. We can get this back together. This isn't right. So it's a very strange, and I'm not suggesting it's a political role model in any sense, but it is an example of what this role can do because I just saw something that I just knew was wrong. I mean, an incredibly proud club in a proud city, a wonderful stadium at the Rico. You go there and you see all the the sky blue seats and you just think they should be here. And uh, fans and citizens, I can just tell you the difference it's made. People feel so proud of it. So, yeah, I just thought I should step into it. And other people have kindly said, yeah, it made a small difference. I'm not offering myself for negotiating the Yemen con- conflict next I think
1: I will leave that to others. <laughs> that might be easier, actually, than uh, negotiating. i said people.
0: that, well, yeah. so yeah.
1: um, Finally, 13 years ago in an interview with The Guardian when you were still at John Lewis, um, you said, if I went to work somewhere else, which I don't intend to, I'd want to do something completely different. I would like to yeah. run a national charity or eventually I'd like to run a bed and breakfast in Wales. Yeah, is that still that's, your guiding ambition?
0: That's a retirement job, uh, Matt. But, um, uh, yeah, I, lo- I love uh, hospitality. I think it's, prob- it's probably naive on my part, the bed and breakfast. I think it's probably an absolute, you know, life sentence because you literally are all hours of the day. But, yeah, there is something behind it. There's nothing I enjoy more than having a, lo- a load of people around at ha- uh, to home and uh, um, entertaining. But that's probably probably quite different to the permanency of the routine of running a hotel uh, but I love Wales as well it's my great escape as all Brummies do of course we love going off to the Welsh Hills and it is the place I go for proper R&R so yeah I'm sure that some point in my life in the future I'll be spending more time out there in the Welsh Hills.
1: Well Andy we'll we'll, we'll wait and see uh, for, for the election result in May. Um, just on the election itself obviously we, we, just in closing we, we did talk about um, the term being extended and people being expected to go to polling stations in May, which, I don't know, I'm still slightly... I don't think I'd feel... Com- I've, I've registered for a postal vote for that re- reason. I don't understand why the Electoral Commission, the government, the kind of non-political arms of our politics aren't doing massive campaigns to get people signed up to postal voting. Is it something you've said to the government? You need to get your finger out here because I don't think people are going to go to polling stations. Um but-
0: we tend to take things into our own hands rather than say to government. So uh, <laughs> so we are trying to encourage people so to do. So are other parties, so all fair in love and war there. Uh, uh, but I, I actually slightly disagree with you. I think by we are making progress. We've got to follow the rules. Please, I'm not underselling that. But I think by May, as uh, three weeks after we're allowed to uh, meet outside in pubs and restaurants, I think people will think... Uh, uh, a fairly, um, a fairly restricted visit to go to vote. That probably is safe for most. But if they don't feel that themselves, then of course they'll be able to. Uh, they'll be able to get that postal vote, as you say.
1: And what about just default registering everyone to vote by post anyway? Yeah. Uh, well, I think perhaps it's the practicality of it. I honestly haven't. You'll
0: have to ask the Electoral Commission why they haven't done that. We run with the rules, uh, but I think by now it would be too late. So to do, actually, and so I think there's probably something deeply traditional and symbolic in the English way. Of, it's lovely, isn't it? We still go with our blunt pencil in France or most countries around Europe. You use an electronic machine now, so there's something very quaint about the English way of doing
1: this. But there's maybe traditions are good in that sense. <laughs> maybe. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Matt. Well there you go Andy Street and that is great news about Coventry going back to the Rico obviously I have family in the area so maybe it means more to me but I think any football fan listening to this part of the reason why football is so popular and apologies to non-football listeners but any team sport is the identity of an area is is so linked to it and the thought of Coventry, the fact that Coventry City have had to play their home games outside of coventry is clearly ludicrous so there you go that is uh that is uh that is great news for all of us whether we live in coventry whether we have people that we know in coventry or not uh, and just great to talk to andy about that that route uh and that i mean obviously we've in the last few years seen people like andy burnham go from westminster to a big mayoral job outside of london it's really interesting to talk to someone who's been involved in politics from a young age, has always been politically engaged and active, and Westminster doesn't appeal to him at all. Um, that is a very different mindset. You can see how you kind of go in and come out, but to never wanted to go and to then become, with the powers that he has, one of the most powerful people in the UK, uh, is a really interesting perspective. And I wonder now, I always think about this with politics, what new generation of politicians are we creating? And I do wonder with COVID whether, that, and it, as I'm sure it will have done, politicised a whole new generation of people. But not just young people; people of all ages um, have really been woken up to the inequalities in our society and just the, I guess, the the inefficiencies and the ineffectiveness of, of parts of our system. And will be animated and want to change that. Whether we will see more people from certain backgrounds going into politics now. Um, But also where they will want to be. Will they look to Westminster or will they say, actually, I want to become mayor of the West Midlands or I want to become mayor of the Manchester City region or I want to become First Minister of Scotland. Wherever they see where the power is that they can have most influence. So that's something that we don't know yet that will be interesting. But it was great talking to Andy. Um, He is up for re-election in May. As I said at the start, make sure if you think you're not going to feel safe going into a polling station in May and you don't want to lose your vote make sure that you're registered uh, for a postal vote. Email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com with any guest suggestions, feedback, uh, or just let me know where you listen. It's always lovely to know where you listen. And um, Sean got in touch and he said he listened to the, uh, it was the IFS uh, Institute of Fiscal Studies episode with Paul Johnson, It was brilliant. I loved that interview. Uh, He listened to it in a park near Blackpool with his three dogs, Twiglet, Bramble and Crumble, which are three brilliant names for dogs um i'm sure many listeners to this show have named their animals after politicians if you have named your pet after a politician do get in touch and let me know send us a picture actually maybe we should start a um political party animal twitter feed it doesn't roll off the tongue does it i think that idea has died a death before it even got out of my mouth but do send us uh, do let us know if you've named your uh, your pets after a politician i'm i'm now meandering off uh so I should I should go. But uh, thank you for downloading this. Please leave a review on iTunes. Tell your friends and family about it. I'll see you next week. It's all right.